0: Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here your co host Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott.
1: Hey, Ann Kelly, it is so fun to be back recording again.
0: It is. It's been a while. We've had tons of guests, but we haven't been here sitting together in quite a while.
1: Part of what we've been doing in the break is really cultivating connections within our NeuroNerd community, the Patreon community.
0: That's been a lot of fun. Your study group is going well, and we have reading pods that have been taking off. I really love how that community is starting to really coalesce.
1: Me too. It's really great. A lot of smart, fun, interesting people. But in addition to that, I'll say some of why we haven't been just jumping on and doing kind of podcast now and then the way that we have before is that we've really been doing this study and deep dive around how race and class and political structure affects the cross between race and class and culture and attachment science. Right. We talk quite a bit
0: about our attachment work being the modern attachment, the modern attachment spectrum and integrating neurobiology and we would be remiss to not continue to take a deep dive into what you just mentioned in terms of identity and race. And and we've been writing a lot, which also... Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. We've been doing I knew all, there was something big <laughs> besides all the normal time? things. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been taking a lot of our time. We're working on a book. We are. And it's a lot of fun, but a lot of work. But, you know, in trying to make this book the most integrated and updated that we can and what we want to put out there, we have to take a deep dive. And it's been really stimulating.
1: That's right. I know many of you are doing workshops, reading books, really trying to deactivate some of our internalized racism. You know, that's been a whole journey in and of itself, lifelong journey, really. But with this racial reckoning that's happening in our country, I think many of us have stopped to really reflect about our part in this. And in doing that, it was the natural next step to look at, oh, there's all these things we're not aware of that we do to contribute to the problem. But it's not that hard to widen the lens and look at psychological theories in general and science in general and how Western and industrial sciences in general, you know, like human sciences. So then it's the next natural step to think about, oh, wait a minute, Bowlby wrote about this in the 50s. Ainsworth was in the 60s.
0: And when you were saying you wrote about this, we're talking about specifically about attachment. That's right. That being a primary focus of this podcast, where did the history come from of the research and what we're reporting on and, and diving into
1: every day on this podcast and in our book? And I have to say, I've always asked, all the researchers that we've had on here, some of them that we have not had on but I've gotten the privilege of speaking with, I always ask about class race, culture, you know, how does this stand up? And the most common response I get is, well, Mary Ainsworth did the original research in Uganda, you know, looking at mothers and infants there for quite some time. Of course, Crittenden, Patricia Crittenden, has done quite a bit of work with a wider variety of folks than, you know, the European-American middle class that many, many psychological studies and research kind of focus on.
0: Yeah, actually, I think you've been having the same experience. The deeper we dive in this, the more we appreciate some of her perspective about how she integrates culture and the environment and how things manifest, that we have to take into account what is happening in individuals' culture, in their environment, in the stress of their specific family when we get into socioeconomic as well as broadening out to different cultures and political pressures that impact our sense of safety and our ability to connect.
1: So, I was pleased to see that even at the Bowlby Center, they're really working to try to stay up to date and integrated with the new research that comes out and with the new thinking around some of our embedded cultural assumptions and our embedded racism. So, that's exciting. But when you really look back, you know, these are privileged, European, white, very educated people that are creating the scales. So going back to Mary Ainsworth in Uganda, one of the things about it is when we are looking at universal attributes, that's what attachment is seen as. Well, it's a biological system that is universal. Well, if it's universal, let's, you know, for us to say that it's universal means that it needs to apply all the way across... Multiple cultures, different ways of thinking. This isn't to criticize the science that's come before. It has been fantastic and some of the most robust and rich research and research that stood up to incredible scrutiny. And so what we're adding today isn't, we're not taking a left turn or right turn. What we're adding is like, we don't know what we don't know. And so the folks that set up these original instruments and began to look, we don't know that we have these embedded assumptions, So our idea here is to simply expand the scope of the way that we think about it and to ask good questions. We're not coming with a lot of answers, but we want to really begin to embed even more. I think that we've done a pretty good job of that so far, of not pathologizing attachment insecurity, for example, and calling it adaptive and that it's a solution to stressors that typically is adaptive in that home environment. Which is a really important point, isn't it? Because the idea of calling
0: something secure versus insecure in our Western culture way of viewing that, it can sound like pathology. It's really hard to separate our own view of even that terminology. So we're having to look at how does our own culture get embedded in both, you know, how we assess attachment. How do we assess what looks like secure attachment? And even what do we label it as? rather than seeing it as an adaptation to the culture, it kind of implies a right and a wrong. And no matter how much we teach it, that this isn't a right or a wrong. That's why, of course, we decided to go with colors, right? Because red, blue, green... It really does have this implication that there's a right way of being in the community and the world and the right way of engaging with your infant. And then there's this other way that really
1: can screw everything up. I mean, there's no getting around the word insecurity, right? Right. (laughs) Who wants to be insecure? Like it's just you're secure, which is good, or you're insecure. One thing as we go is that everybody that we've interviewed, everybody that we've studied under and studied with and talked to about this everybody wants to get here. So there's no bad guys. This isn't us calling out the patriarchy of some of the scholars that have come before. I mean, I guess it sort of is that, but it's done in that we're all in this together, and we're all pulling in the same direction. Because we're calling ourselves out. That's exactly
0: right. Right. We're not just calling out. I mean, there is an influence that we're in a patriarchal society that has influenced quite a bit of this research, and we'll talk about that but it is also our own embeddedness in this culture and somehow the ways we talk about it can imply that there's a certain way that mother-infant kind of sensitivity is supposed to look like for it to be that kind of secure relating. And diving into some of this deep cultural differences has really been helpful for me personally. I think you too. And so we're
1: calling ourselves out. That's right. We're calling ourselves out and we're learning. And here's the thing. If you are secure, if you're integrated neurologically, then it's really no sweat to update your model. And that's what you really want to do. You want to keep learning. If you feel safe, it's okay to incorporate new information. It's when we get further out on the poles of the red and the blue, where that we get more brittle and rigid about, no, this is right. And I think that's some of what we're calling white fragility, is where that we're not able to incorporate some of these new ideas. It's not new ideas, but like new ideas for us. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Frankly. What do you think about like starting just with class in general? That sounds great. Yeah. Because in the United States, you know, it's interesting. There's not like a obvious class system, like a caste. Mm-hmm. It's not immediately obvious. So I think a lot of what we end up doing is we end up with possessions trying to demonstrate our class status. So what do we mean by class exactly, right? In the research, we talk about SES. Which is... Uh
0: What is SES? All of
1: a sudden, I use it so often. I'm like, socioeconomic status. That's right. I did the same thing. I was was, was taking notes and stuff, and I was like, SES, SES, SES. Wait, wait, wait. What is that? (laughs) Yeah, socioeconomics. To be super clear, what we're talking about is what they call SES or (laughs) socioeconomic status. status. That basically, it's about your occupation, it's about your education, and it's about your income and wealth. That's stratified, really. So let's go right to the brain. And this was fascinating research showing that you can predict cortical surface area. So if you were to take off your skull and look down at all the wrinkles in the top of your brain, basically the more surface area you have, the better that is for vocabulary, for problem solving, for impulse control, distractibility, all those good things. So we want lots of wrinkles and lots of surface area, but like one of the biggest factors is household income. In how much
0: surface area develops because it's not you're born with or without it. That's exactly right? right. It's it's a developmental process. We talk about the fact that our brain begins developing in utero and continues and continues and continues, actually till we die. And as we engage with our world and how and very importantly how the world engages with us really can
1: create that process. That's right. So there's a couple of factors of this you know, as far as the brain size and the brain structure, just related to income, simply income, forget attachment for a second. This is what's so crazy about this, is that on fMRIs, you can measure this, and it is a really strong finding. And what they've boiled it down to is they believe that there's a couple of factors, primarily it's language and stress. So if you're having trouble making ends meet, and your employment isn't stable, and you get laid off, or you get fired, or you get sexually harassed at work and aren't able to leave, the many, many, many structural stressors related to income disparity, that is going to impact your parenting, right? It's going to impact your sensitivity. Think about just everybody listening, just when you're tired, as a parent, how you look, (laughs) right? Right. And for those of us, I mean, we think there's so much
0: More, even if you're not from a lower SES, to really bring yourself to relate to even the stressors from the pandemic. And when the stress was so high, whether because you lost your job or because you couldn't leave or all the different stresses, how much that impacted your ability to engage with the world, with friends, with your children, to be patient, that that inherently is
1: going to inhibit our ability to even just interface. Totally. So that stressor is one of the reasons that then we give subpar parenting. It's not because we're better or worse than anybody. Every human being under this stress will respond in a similar way. Right. We're not able to be nurturing. That's right. In the way that our instinct would be if we were fully flushed. And then you add on top of that, this idea of language. And we're going somewhere with this. This is going to build on itself around those of you who that are interested in attachment and know about attachment measures. And I don't remember the number. It's, it's in the billions of difference of words that a child has heard when you're not having economic strain. Or let's say that you're born into privilege in some way, shape or form. Your parents are more likely to talk with you. They're more likely to be talking out loud and mentalizing. They're more likely to be home
0: instead of working three or four jobs. That's right. Right. So you have just direct access to language because you have older individuals or maybe multiple that are actually having an ability to have conversations that's not been inhibited by high stress and cortisol in your
1: body. That's right. Right. And so with people who are struggling with this income disparity, the number of words uh, exposure is much, much lower. And they tend to be more directive. Again, I think of this about bandwidth and also about culture. You know, there's a more authoritative stance. There's more of a correctional stance. Because it's survivalistic, right? That's right. It's survivalistic. You've got to get the child to do what you need them to do. You know, put your clothes on. (laughs) Right. We have to go. We can't be this. That's right. I'm going to be late. I could get fired. So these things profoundly impact the development of the physical structure of the brain. So I think it's just about impossible to separate out things like class and income and economic strain from measures that are a little bit more ethereal, you know, maternal sensitivity. And we'll get into more about that related to culture about what is sensitive and what isn't sensitive. But like, that's just the first layer is the economic strain. These things are associated with everything from academic success to teen pregnancy to mental health issues, higher anxiety, higher depression. And to
0: take a moment on that, because we're talking about the limited resources that the parent has to offer the child, but we also want to really emphasize, we talk a lot about neuroception and what the child and the infant on up is picking up in the stress level of the parent, and that that will also our infants and young children are complete receptors of picking up these kind of things from their parents, and so when that happens, guess what happens? You have mirror neurons, and you have an infant and a young child that is also highly stressed, and for what is available to them, even if it 's an early childhood program, while essential and important that is if a child is incredibly. Involved in high levels of stress in their own body, they're not able to take in even the words that are offered to them. So there's going to be less words coming at them, but their ability to receive it because their own stress level is so high is going to be limited. And
1: with mirror neurons and all of those things, if parents are stressed, child is going to be stressed. You're going to wake up with more cortisol in your body. That's even just assuming just this generation. But when we get into epigenetics, and race, and the stressors of a culture and a community, those also get transmitted. And so all of these things are impacting how a parent parents and also how a child develops. This is very, very solid science. 40% of children born prematurely and that live in chronic poverty have deficits in at least two areas of functioning, and that's by age three. So all these ideas of like, oh, we'll do pre-K will do early education are still fantastic, but they're really expensive. And it's a little bit where you get behind the ball. You know, the impact is already happening in these very, very critical stages. And this is just a little bit of an aside, but I really got into like, whoa, what can we do? Oh my God, what can we do? And one of the things that came really just glaringly clear out of the research is that if you can advocate for policy related to direct giving, so a mother... That gets twenty five percent more, let's say, than her normal salary. It will substantially impact this cascade of things. And just taking the strain of that off of her, where that she can begin to think about her child more creatively and fully, and lovingly and wholeheartedly. It's not that there's not loving and wholeheartedness in parenting, regardless. It's just more accessibility it's, to all right. of those. If natural we're surviving, things. it's very very hard to turn around. I have this weird thing about like, like I talked at one point in my own work about like I was the biscuit giver and I was constantly giving biscuits and biscuits and you know, I could sense when somebody was hungry and I wanted to give them biscuits. But there's this idea of somewhere I've got to be getting the flour and the milk and like the ingredients to make the biscuits to give the biscuits. And when that's not happening, it's very hard for us to deliver any kind of nurturance and sensitivity and support and just the play, the play that happens that is so essential to child development.
0: How this is so relevant, if we just jump for a second right into how we connect this to attachment, is that by giving resources and just an immediate financial resources to these low SES individuals, by giving them more access through epigenetics, we are impacting a flow all the way down the lines. Because if she or he is able to engage with that infant in a level that is less stressed and more giving, we're really emphasizing how much the capacity for that infant to engage in the world in a more secure way, and how that continues to flow down the line.
1: Yeah, I love that you brought that up around ancestors, like the impact that we can make now on the child's child's child is so powerful. And this is very much in why you and I care enough to do this, (laughs) you know, trying to get the science out to people because it can be literally life-changing.
0: Well, life-changing and also I just want to throw a little note about de-shaming because if we are just looking at attachment from what is the exact interaction between a parent and a child and a parent receives the information that how they're engaging is insufficient and we just need to change that one interaction and that's going to have the glowing effect, it's really short-sighted in a sense because We're not looking at all the resources that are impacting her stress and her inability to engage with this infant. And that frees it up from looking just so much at the dyad, the infant-mother dyad. And we're really wanting to
1: blow this into much more of a cultural, broader dialogue. So then let's go right back to attachment for a second. So when you look at adult attachment inventories and then you cross that with socioeconomic status, Sure enough, no surprise, it does show up that as you look at lower socioeconomic status, in other words, opportunity, education, income, wealth, that you are going to see what the research calls insecure attachment. So we want to just be honest about that. And then when you cross that with race, there's more white folks (laughs) below the poverty line than there are any other color yet. You're proportionately more likely to be affected by income disparity if you have color in your skin, whatever that is. Indigenous people's, Hispanic, anybody that is other than the white culture is going to be more affected by this. So you have to watch the science because it might sound like, oh, African Americans are more likely to be avoidantly attached. This is true. You will see this in the literature that that. And so then we can then make all
0: these assumptions. That's right. Based on the race or the culture and judgments about how they parent and how we should intervene and how we can also hear how that's coming across and how that is as if we have like the answer, like somehow the Caucasian areas being more secure or we have the answers to parenting. And you know, we're actually calling BS on
1: that. Here's the thing is if you're in a minority group that faces discrimination and exclusion and violence, or you could be deported you're going to be less likely then to access resources and this is particularly true it goes down the poverty line that if you you know don't know someone if you don't have the attorney if you don't have the resources and you have this cultural oppression consciously and unconsciously then you're going to be less likely to say oh my gosh i need help i yelled at my kid or i hit my kid or i right. or i'm pregnant again i'm not sure what to do so again this is a systematic problem. This isn't an individual problem. This is why we really want to get away from thinking of attachment as a disorder. And also to question what we mean by secure and insecure attachment. Getting back
0: to crittenden, if someone is, or even a culture is falling predominantly in an insecure realm, and I'm using my little quotes here, it could be the best adaptation to the environment and the society that they're in. So we have to broaden it from this parent-child interaction and saying, but wait, the culture, the environment that they're in, that might exactly be the way of relating for
1: survival and the healthiest, most adaptive way. So you have the unit, and again, this is a Western idea that it's just a dyad and then maybe a triad with two parents, but you have the unit. Then what can happen in some circumstances is that you get child care and then at least in child care, you're getting a more resourced individual. But guess what? When you live in the zip codes where there's this financial strain, you know, you can see these effects of lower vocabulary usage of the strain of the caregivers. They're paid less. The turnover is more. So the child is not getting the benefit than when they go out of the house because it's in the neighborhood and then it's in the school system. And this is one of the ways that, again, systems are creating this insecurity, systems are creating this oppression, and these barriers for child development that when we just look at attachment, it goes back to the, like you're saying, Anne, just to the individuals. And unfortunately, here's another thing, is that it's often on the mom. When the science first came out, remember, it was right after World War II. Right after World War II, the emphasis being on, let's keep the mom at home. They didn't want the moms to go back into the workforce. There was national legislation that was stopped that would have provided, you know, federal daycare. Like you said, the legislature, even for early
0: preschool, Which I am such a big advocate for, by the way, paid preschool. But it was really stopped by the outcry of the fear. And sometimes research such as this, as well meaning as it is, can be used to backfire with the emphasis that if mothers somehow go into the workforce, they're sacrificing their children. And so I love that we're going to move now, we should move into even sort of the
1: cultural, the patriarchal, the the patriarchal Um, power differences. Here's the thing. If we update it to now, we can still use the attachment science and policy, but to do it more accurately, which is reducing the strain on the parents, really, really focusing on early child development and, you know, resource supporting. But I think we're just trying to make the point that initially, you know, the mom's got all the blame, and that's not unusual. And and the responsibility. And the responsibility. And that's one of the criticisms of you know, looking at just this dyadic system, you know, what about dads? What about when you have two dads? What about, here's another one, when culturally you have a lot of kids and then the older kids provide the care? And that mm. is a system that works, that can work. And this is, again, some of our unconscious assumptions is that the way that it happened for us in this Western industrial, they call it weird. I love that. Western, educated, industrial, rich. Rich and developed kind. Con- Developed? Developed, I think you're right, yeah. Basically, all the stuff that we are, you know, as a community, as a culture, maybe many of us listening, that we can't see that there are other ways sometimes. So, for example, collectivist cultures versus individualistic cultures. Basically, that's bi-directional. So, basically, you know, when you're raised in the the way that we described, where there's more health issues, there's less access to support, there's the strain, all those things – that gets embedded in the child's experience of interpersonal relating and in their bodies and in their brains and in their nervous system. And then they grow up and they have children. And so some of this is that income disparity creates what we're calling insecurity. But then also as you form an insecure, again, I, I don't know the right language. We, we haven't figured this out yet. We have more questions than answers this attachment-challenged person who has been in this strained situation grows up, has kids, as a matter of fact, will more likely have children early, then you see what I'm saying, that it's bidirectional, so that then they're less likely to have the emotional range as another parent. They're less likely to even recognize the need to ask for help and support. They are more likely to be inhibited in their own emotional expression, So we can begin to see the intergenerational nature and the bi-directional way that income affects parenting and child development, but then that child development turns around and it recycles into, you know, creating more socioeconomic issues related to, you know, educational achievement, occupational achievement, all of those things.
0: So speaking of patriarchy, when we're talking about, you mentioned the time and period that the attachment research became... Really, uh, part of our culture. And it was during a really important time for the message to be women need to stay home and go into the workforce. And that research, sometimes, even though it's out for the best good, can really have an effect on our culture that's powerful and needs to be questioned. Because the message then was that if women were to go out into the workforce, it would directly have a negative impact on the child's and the family's functioning.
1: And that has been fairly oppressive to women for a long time. I wouldn't say fairly. It's been incredibly oppressive. Well, good point. Right. And then we are more likely to take on the emotional labor at home, the physical labor with the child. So putting the power imbalance in our minds as we're looking at attachment systems, maybe the mother isn't being sensitive to the child because they're being dominated by a man that is also caught up in the patriarchy. The patriarchy from my mind isn't, you know, a gender war. It is a war about mutuality and shared power versus those who would rather protect their power over and keep people in their place. That's what I mean by patriarchy. So if you're with a partner, whatever their gender is, that is caught themselves in their own patriarchal system and they're pushing down and they are dominating and they are privileging their own thoughts and feelings and they are minimizing the partner's experience, then that is going to impact. The child and the child development and the child responsiveness and maternal sensitivity and all sorts of things. We're really trying to get away from thinking of attachment as everything. Attachment isn't everything. Attachment is one psychological measure that has been, again, super rich, really robust. But I think our point today is to incorporate all of these other things that really affect child development and that affect potentially the measures of how we measure attachment, you know, the lens of attachment.
0: And how the attachment research might be used in our culture to unintentionally or sometimes intentionally, intentionally. That's right. oppress the message being that the mother infant attachment being so important that the woman going into the world would be the crux of what would create insecure attachment. That isn't actually true. Daycare studies show that a woman going into the world and a child being with other caregivers can have a very secure attachment. It's the quality of those kinds of nurturance that the child gets as he or she grows up. And to use it as something that could, like you said, intentionally or unintentionally either oppress women or create this sense of chronic insufficiency and guilt that women often struggle with. Women are known to need to be the givers. And if they aren't, they're somehow feeling insufficient. We need mutual giving, mutual nurturance from all aspects of the family, including the men in the family and the women in the family. Like you were mentioning the idea of equal power, equal nurturance, equal giving. That's right, mutuality. Mutuality being essential.
1: And in our Western world, that, again, typically is mom, and then maybe it extends out to two parents. But, again, that's just our Western-educated, industrialized view, that when you look, when you pull back and you look at the whole world, there's a lot of different ways to parent. And embedded in some of the research, including, let's talk about maternal sensitivity, in some cultures, what maternal sensitivity looks like is helping the child inhibit their feelings and inhibit negative reactions in order to get along communally. That that is actually a very important thing that the parent delivers in a more collectivist culture. Right. We
0: could examples of that would be the Japanese culture, the the Latino culture, the emphasis being on interdependent and collective society. So the identity is about the social context, it's not in about interdependence, so that the individual emotional expression doesn't serve a more important part of the environment than the collective needs. So that's why the suppression of intense emotion may be because the collective good is outweighing that individual good.
1: And especially in East Asia, and just Asia in general, but especially East Asia, with these collectivist cultures, basically interdependence is valued more. That's kind of, I'm just repeating kind of what you said. Interdependence is valued more than this autonomy. So again, looking at maternal sensitivity, like even if you think about putting a baby on a sling and facing the baby towards you versus facing the baby outwards, There are communities where the baby always goes outward because that outward, that kinship, that clan, that extended family, the siblings, the cousins are very much part of the parenting system. It's not a dyad. It is just simply not a dyad. And so when we impose our own cultural assumptions and we don't make room for this, yeah, you might measure on a Western scale that you inhibit emotions, or that you're particularly too tuned in to the other person. And that looks like anxiety, but in that community and in that culture, that is entirely adaptive. And what I don't totally get or understand yet, and I think that this is yet to be answered, is that, so let's say in a collectivist culture, on an attachment instrument, they're going to look like they are more anxiously attached. They're focused outward, less internal contact, more external contact, and anxiety related to getting along and maintaining those connections. But does that necessarily in that community correlate with some of the negative outcomes that insecure attachment, that anxious attachment has in the Western world? So that to me is a really interesting question that I suspect is very different, which is part of why this idea of insecurity, calling it insecurity, potentially could be culturally inappropriate. Right, and just even how
0: they... I think it's an interesting... It's kind of a two-factor. First is how is it assessed? Because in some cultures, like uh, the Latino cultures, children playing close to the mother is the priority, where our Western view would see that as insecure attached. So we might actually view that and assess that as more insecure than in that culture it is
1: received. Yeah, that's a great example. So Puerto Rico, for example. Puerto Rican mothers, this is research. This isn't just an assumption. They basically do have a high level of maternal control. Maternal control is one of the things that is measured in attachment literature. So they are what Western would consider intrusive, use a high level of physical control rather than using words. So you would think that these would be seen as insensitive and then would create insecurity. But in that community, the highest control is associated with secure attachment for Puerto Rican mothers and their children, for those pairs. Yes, the, so- the concept of respect maintaining relatedness and obedience. And lovingness, the emphasis on lovingness. They value lovingness
0: and respect where Anglos will value personal development, the personal development of the, the individual rather than the lovingness in the dyad. Is that what you mean?
1: I wouldn't use the word lovingness because the whole idea here is that there's a harshness. There's a focus on obedience. It's a different tonal note than this loving sensitivity thing. But basically what they're saying, though, is that in these pairs, that that is what is associated with security, not necessarily the love and sensitivity. And I do it, too, like imposing what we're calling lovingness. In this culture, loving is respect, and respect is obedience. You know what I mean? Right, right. That's a really good point. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it really does actually look different.
0: And I think you want to tap a little bit more on the differences between a more individualistic culture and a collective culture, because we see that now in just how we've responded to the pandemic across the world. And so I think what's interesting about that is because we're emphasizing that a lot of the attachment research comes from the Western, more individualistic background, one of the outcomes of a secure attachment is autonomy. Right. We very much value autonomy. And if you have a secure relating, you're able to go out and function in the world, which is a wonderful thing. I mean, I'm not negative on autonomy, but the emphasis on autonomy where collective cultures is more about emphasis on the betterment of the society rather than the individual goals. And so it's just an interesting idea about how we even assess the outcome of secure relating and that we can tend to almost undervalue through this view, the idea of interdependence, like making interdependence itself seem somehow an insecure way of relating.
1: Totally. I think that's exactly right. And this is interesting too, that if your culture has assimilated with a dominant culture that is associated with security, Now, the question is, was it because you felt secure in your community that you could incorporate change and then therefore it's associated with security? Or is it that by aligning, not having this disparity in your cultural beliefs versus the dominant culture beliefs is part of the security? It's just really interesting sort of bi-directional questions in my mind. But also just even having an identity, like a cultural identity, is also associated with security. So if you can imagine you know, in this community, in this family, we are whatever the culture and culture again is different than ethnicity. You think of it as the rituals and some of the physical practices and including the parenting practices.
0: I think that's so important because we forget so much about what our assumptions are culturally based and how we see good parenting is so culturally based and that we're embedded in that culture. So to not project that onto the majority of the world and our interpretation is just essential.
1: That's right. You mentioned Japan earlier. There's a word, and I'm not going to know how to pronounce it, but it's A-M-A-I. Somebody can let us know how to actually say that correctly. I just don't want to butcher it out of respect. But the word is their word for attachment, or it's a similar word to attachment, but that word focuses on dependence emotionally and physically on the caregiver. and So that is what attachment looks like there. And I'm thinking of indigenous first peoples and Native peoples. And some of the differences there as well, again, related to community, related to kinship, related Mm -hmm. to the village. So there's a couple of things that I'm thinking about that I would really want people to hear. One is that we're not diluting the attachment science. It is good data. It is rich data. And every serious scholar and researcher and clinician and therapist that is interested in this wants to continue to incorporate new information and see this contextually
0: and they intend they are that this is growing and growing and growing and looking at it from a multicultural context but we also want to emphasize that we don't as therapists uncensored want to be communicating that the way that the western world views parenting and attachment is the way parenting should be incorporated throughout the world
1: And we would really like to invite everybody to see the individual. Attachment isn't everything. It is important, and it's not everything. So we want to really encourage everyone to take off the lens of pathology. Anne's favorite word is curiosity. To put on your curiosity, to come to understand what this adaptation that you're seeing means. And from their place, from their history, from their cultural history, from power dynamics, histories of violence, and of course, resource equity. And that's exciting. And there's no answers in that. There's just questions, but it really is. And I'm not sure how to exactly incorporate it like more as part of the weave instead of this isn't just an episode. This is a shift that we have started a while back, but that we really are trying to name put putting very, in these things in context.
0: We want to very much interweave it. I like the context of interweaving. Yeah. Inter- can, I, can I share something, Fanny? Please. So listening to Brene Brown the other day, you know that she and I share one of our favorite sitcoms, and that is Ted Lasso. So if you haven't seen that, she did a whole episode on it. I was shocked about it. But one of the things that the directors of that said is that The thing that Ted Lasso represents, and it is quite the opposite of the culture of dominance, is that we all have ignorance. We all have ignorance, and that's what we're talking about. But we can have ignorance with arrogance. We have ignorance, but we don't want to be ignorant. So we're going to be arrogant that we know best. We know best for this culture. We know best for that culture. Let us tell you what's the best. For that family and for that client. For that family, that client, exactly. But what Ted Lasso represents is ignorance with curiosity. And I realized when she said that, that's why I love that show and I love that character because he walks through the world with, he isn't actually ignorant in a bubbling fool kind of way. He's ignorant, but he opens his ignorance up to curiosity and he accepts it with such love and grace. And so I kind of feel like that's what... Ted Lasso. I'm, Ted Lasso. That's I mean, <laughs> Brene Brown even says, you know, come on guys. She says, she says it to her kids. Ted Lasso it, right? It's, and so I don't know what she means by that, but I would mean by that is... Open our hearts that we are ignorant, but we're gaining knowledge and we want to and we're gonna continue, but we're gonna do it with curiosity about how all of this wonderful literature and research is gonna to continue to grow as we integrate
1: all this wonderful
0: resources that we're getting across the world.
1: That's awesome. So Ted Lasso, look him up. <laughs> <laughs> I am we're not getting any buybacks from Ted Lasso. It's just a great program. <laughs> I think my version it's of that my was, jam. <laughs> my vo- my version of that was force gump of like you know, the simplicity and there's some innocence, yes. but there's also this benevolence and goodness and willingness. And also
0: the last thing about Ted Lasso is emphasis on not winning. The emphasis was on the team and the culture and the development. And the, and it drives everybody crazy because he's not out for how are we going to dominate? He's out for how are we going to go at it as a team? And I really like that emphasis on how we're approaching this information
1: too. I love that. I actually really like what you just said there, that we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. And anytime we can find ourselves standing on some sort of a pedestal, whether it be from science, science said, blah, 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 you know, that still yeah. can be a power over. It doesn't mean that we don't know what we know, and mm-hmm. we don't believe what we believe, but it's collective. And our arms are open and my heart, our hearts are open, and we're willing to learn. I like so that. we're not in it for the win. We're in it. Um, what did you say? <laughs> See nice how remember. foreign it is to me. <laughs> it's not, not in it in for, for the win. win. We're in for the community, for the collective. Yeah. We're in for the journey of it. Yeah, that's right. All right. It's been fun to sit and, and, I know. and, and chat with you. Oh, and by the way, those of you guys who are still with us right now, when are we going to end Season episode five. five? So I think it's about to end. <laughs> everybody's going to feel
0: it thank god season
1: five has just been going on and on and on
0: a funny thing even our even our sound editor the other day said when are you guys going to end season five (laughs) and we went this is how you know it's an indie podcast we're like maybe we should we should have a producer we have a couple more episodes in the can coming your way but we are going to end season five take a little break do some of our favorites and get rejuvenated okay and
1: in the meantime if you guys want more patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored that's fine if you don't want to sign up but if you want to help us out and if you're still listening hopefully you found value in this podcast then please share it and give us a rating and review that is the best way that we can be discoverable to people all over the world They take it seriously when we have those ratings, and it really helps get this amazing science out to the world. So the rating and review is really important. If you want to sign up, patreon.com. Right now, the next book that's up is Strange Situation by Bethany Saltman, who investigated Mary Ainsworth and her work, which is really fascinating. It's a great book.
0: And by the way, what she means by that is we just did a little nod to this, is we have reading groups for Patreon members now that you can join via Zoom. And it's kind of, it's not kind of, it's really fun. People are joining all over the world. We do have common meeting times and you get to be part of studying a book and talking about it with colleagues. It's wonderful.
1: All right, Ann Kelly. All right. Shall we wrap?
0: Let's do it. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.